0: Hello and welcome to this episode of A World to Win, and this week I'm talking to Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental Institute of Social Research and author of many books, including his most recent book, Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA, Coups and Assassinations. We discuss the recent wave of strikes that have taken place across India, the rise of the far right in India and across the world, and the mechanisms through which imperial power is exercised in the global economy today. As always, please do remember to become a patron if you can. You can listen to the full hour long episode of the interview this week, along with interviews with all our previous guests on our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. If you want to support the show in another way, please remember to follow us on social media, where you can find us at @aworldtowinpod, a world to win pod. And also please do rate us on iTunes to keep us up in the charts. And remember to share this episode with friends and comrades. So without further ado, I give you Vijay Prashad talking about the recent wave of strikes that's been taking place across India. Thank you so much, Vijay Prashad, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today?
1: Great. Thanks a lot. Super to be with you. Uh, very nice name for a podcast, by the way.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, as always, taking influence from uh, from Marx there, who has a has a way with words, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, this week, we're going to be talking a bit about Indian politics, um, and then US forests foreign policy and uh, your new book, Vijay, which I'm, um, I'm very excited to talk to you about. Um, so first, we're going to talk a little bit about India. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the kind of uh, the, the enormous wave of protests that we've seen in India over the last few months, um, including a strike that took place on the 3rd of December, which I think is now officially the largest strike that's ever taken place in, in human history. Can you talk to us a bit about what's behind um, the protests?
1: Well, there's two ways to approach this. One is the structural issues at play. And I think we should spend a few minutes on those. And then the fact that people have risen up because, you know, let's be fair about this. You can have a bad situation, but people don't necessarily rise up. And I think that bears some explanation. The first thing that needs to be looked at is for the last 20 odd years, The Indian ruling elites have pushed a very hard agenda to get as much benefit uh, from productive activity for themselves as possible. This is not different than ruling elites around the world. So they've been trying to dismantle all the barriers that uh, have been put up by the national movement, which wanted to create a national market, which wanted to create opportunities for people and so on this was this national movement was of course the consequence of the struggle against the british empire they created various instruments barriers and so on including of course the normal barrier for the working class movement which was an eight-hour day and over the last 20 years helped by the international monetary fund you know they've put forward ideas like labor market reform this euphemism essentially means basically cutting all barriers to full, complete and ruthless exploitation of working people. On the one side, that's in factories and so on. And then in rural areas, there's been an attempt to drive a very hard commercialization of every aspect of farming life, cut subsidies, bring farming goods to big corporations, not have price controls, not have public distribution systems in place and so on. So this thrust over the last two decades has really you know, had major gains. Under the BJP government, the right-wing government that won re-election in 2019, in the second term of this right-wing government, they decided to go hell for leather. And during the pandemic, they pushed three bills and two essentially ordinances, but also rules really, one, the three bills were farm bills, which they rushed through the parliament with a voice vote. They have a majority, but they didn't want any discussion of these bills. Um, these bills essentially dismantle price controls for farmers, which has which would be catastrophic not only for medium farmers but also big farmers. But but of course, good for corporate houses. So that was one thing. Second thing they did was they pushed a series of rules that increase, for instance, the working day to 12 hours. You know, gone is the 10-hour day, the 8-hour day. Now we're back to 12-hour day. And this really uh, rankled people across the country. So the first thing is the objective situation. There's been a thrust over 20 years to drive this hard bargain to get more gains for a very minuscule minority of the population. You know, those who are... The dominant classes in, in Indian society in agriculture and in industry. Now, uh, a lot of bad things happen in the world, but you don't necessarily get an upsurge you know, at all. The trade union movement, uh, which is quite small in India in comparison to the workforce, I think it's important to know that Indian informal sector, that is non-organized informal sector, is about 93% of the workforce. The trade union movement is very weak, But over the course of this 20-year thrust by the ruling elites to push their own agenda, the trade union federations of all the parties except the BJP, except the right wing, have come together and every year they've organized a major general strike, at least once a year. Over the course of the years, you've seen 180 million people strike, 200 million and so on. Now, this is way more than the number of people in the organized unions. So they are, have been able to reach out to the informal sector because they've taken up the issues of the informal sector workers. It's very important. The trade unions in India don't just fight for the rights of their own members. They are fighting for the rights of society. So they've taken up issues of the, you know, uh, daycare workers, healthcare workers, the care sector has been central to the demands of the coal workers, of the railroad workers, and so on. And this has brought large numbers of care workers onto the streets. So when you see these strikes, even before last year, you see tens of millions of women workers on the streets. You know, it's a very important development. And because they've had this constant annual strike, this year when they called a strike 26th of November, 250 million people went on strike and filled the streets. Now, it's the middle of a pandemic, but nonetheless, I mean, it's extraordinary that 250 million people struck. That was against both the attack on labor, the the two labor ordinances and the three farm bills. Then on the same day, 26 November, tens of thousands of farmers from Punjab and Haryana, two states that abut New Delhi, the capital, marched on the city they marched on the city and they basically were stopped with armed force at the edges of Delhi. Um, And they fought against the police and the security forces. Now, it's important to know, as I said, that even rich farmers, by rich farmers, we don't mean like corporate farming. We mean just the bigger farm, landowning farmers had participated. So they brought tractors and so on. And there was a direct confrontation because you have from agricultural worker to the larger farmers involved in this struggle. It's a very unified fight. And farm unions that are organized by communists were there and farm unions organized as like commercial vehicles of the richer farmers. They were all there. They have been fighting together. And that farmer's revolt then picked up after the 28th of November and continues till this day. And now farmers are saying on the 26th of January, which is India's Republic Day, they are going to enter the city of Delhi en masse in their tractors and just paralyze the city, not allow the Republic Day celebrations to take place in the normal way, which is a demonstration of the state's power. But they want to demonstrate the power of the farmers, the Kisans. Um, and you know the soldiers have come out on behalf of the farmers. There are platforms around the country, you know, citizens for farmers, um, you know, doctors for farmers, students for farmers and so on. And so this has had a major impact on Indian society. Um, the government has been trying to sort of split the, the struggle. They've made some modest, but really non-compromises and the farmers are holding firm. They are saying, look, this is what we want. We want you to withdraw these three bills Um, We want to have a proper negotiation about farm subsidies, price controls, and so on. So, I mean, India is in the middle of an amazing ferment grace. but I also don't want to exaggerate this because there's a big difference between protests and electoral gains. You know, if there's an election today, most likely Mr. Modi will win again. And that's because democratic institutions in places like India, but also in the UK, have been corrupted by money power corrupted by the media's basic you know uh, fealty to money and so on so there's massive social upsurge in India but whether this can have a electoral impact that is to be seen
0: thanks DJ I'm um- the Supreme Court this week has offered to set up a committee to look into the agricultural laws that the farmers have been protesting against. Do you think this is going to take the wind out of the sails of the protests and how can they stay mobilized to make sure that this, you know, as you were just uh, as you were just talking about, that these protests kind of are able to translate into a much broader program of kind of political change?
1: Yeah, so the court uh, led by the Chief Justice Bob Day, uh, you know, has basically come out and said that um, the farm laws must be stayed. In other words, they cannot be implemented. Uh, But there's been some problems in the Supreme Court's order, if I can say this. Firstly, they set up an expert committee. Now, look, if you're going to set up an expert committee, and there's a farmers revolt ongoing, you should consult the farmers revolt, consult the representatives. Do you want to Um, you know, expert committee, the farmers' representatives are already talking to the government. So why should you have an expert committee set up by the court to do what? And that's why the farmers' representatives, they rejected the expert committee outright, just on principle. Then secondly, the court appointed four people onto that committee. And it turns out all four of them are in support of the three farm laws. Um, you know, one of them, Ashok Gulati, for instance, he has been pushing for neoliberal policies in agriculture for years. So the not only on principle was the Supreme Court doing something odd by, you know, empaneling an expert committee. Nobody asked for that. Secondly, the people they put on the committee. I mean, these are people who are pro-farm law. How, how will they have any credibility, um, you know, and they've said that, well, you know, a, a report must be submitted to the court in two months. Well, we already know what's going to be in that report. It's very unlikely that, you know, people like Ashok Gulati are going to turn around and say, oh, you know, now, um, you know, there's uh, we have had a change of heart and so on. And the other thing is that, um, you know, uh, I mean, they, they basically have come out against the revolt, the, the Supreme Court order. They asked farmers to go back to their homes, you know, and they made odd remarks about elderly and women and so on. I thought this is just not very productive way forward. So yes, they stayed the implementation of the, of the laws. And that's, that's fine. That's great. Uh, I think that's something to be, you know, applauded that the laws are not going to be implemented, but this expert committee, come on. And then the people you've put on it. Oh God. And then finally, Disparaging remarks about protests—I don't think this is going to actually, you know, uh, lift the credibility of the experts committee, uh, since the very order that produced that expert committee also disparaged the uh, the farmers' protests. I mean, it's the farmers' protests that led to the stay of those laws, not the Supreme Court's reading of the laws. So why would you disparage the very thing that made that order possible? You see. There's a logical flaw there.
0: You um you mentioned in your first answer this kind of question of of kind of reforming Indian capitalism reform in inverted commas because it's the favoured uh, choice of phrase by kind of the the Western financial press and and international institutions, which basically kind of means the, the imposition of, of free market policies. There was quite a lot of excitement when Modi came to power um, in much of the Western financial press about his ability to push through reforms like removing subsidies, easing labor laws, kind of, you know, improving the functioning of financial markets, a whole load of other classic reforms that you would see from, you know, international financial institutions all the time. But recently, there's been a bit of a Pushback from some of those papers, and indeed some of those those international institutions as well, saying that Modi hasn't really been able to implement those free market reforms to the extent that he would uh, that he would have liked, or that they would have liked. So, yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that Modi's failure to do uh, some of these like deep-seated structural reforms to Indian capitalism has been down to a kind of a lack of will? Or has it been about resistance from the people who would have lost out from those uh, those changes?
1: I mean, the, it's a great question. And, and there's two important things, to see, observations to make, I think, immediately. <laughs> One is that, you know, Marx in Capital Volume 1 says that the barrier to the ambitions of the manufacturer or the capitalist. The barrier to the ambitions is basically the survival of the people. If it was possible to take labor and run them through an organ grinder, you know, uh, you can you can run them through and they're done and you don't need the people to survive. But the fact is, you know, you know that they need to come back and work the next day and therefore you can't have the working day be 24 hours. That's what the manufacturer would like, you have to let them go home. You're making them anyway, socially reproduce, you know, through domestic labor, whether it's, you know, the labor care labor of a woman in the household or or, or whatnot, you're basically outsourcing social reproduction. And then they come back the next day, you know, with some strength to uh, maintain their, their working the next day and so on. So the barrier to their ambitions is basically the survival of the people. In India, survival is a serious issue. Grace, maybe up to 700 million people struggle with nutrition, um, and so it's not easy to just do so-called labor market reform and cut, cut, cut. You know, deflate livelihood of people even more. You'll have mass starvation at a scale. Visible that you can't see right now. You have mass starvation in India, but the scale will increase, and will liberals be able to tolerate that? I mean, how much can the liberal consciousness tolerate of the deflation of of uh, basic livelihood and conditions of life in places like India? You know, will you tolerate more? So that's one natural barrier in a way. It's not a political barrier. It's a natural barrier. Human society, where we are now with the development of some element of liberal consciousness, however hazy it is, cannot tolerate total mass starvation, you know. So that's one barrier. And and Modi has not been able to go beyond that barrier. This is the great difference between India and China. I mean, China in the Mao period developed literacy, uh, higher nutrition, healthier population. I mean, these social improvements were amazing in China. Now, abolishment of absolute poverty in India, it's the opposite. You know, much unhealthy population, low nutrition rates, body size smaller, higher rates of stunting among children and so on. So it's a natural block that you can't just drive any sort of so-called reform policy and and get more gains for the elite. There simply isn't that, that far you can go. That's one. Secondly, there is a political pushback because in India, there are constituencies that are fairly well organized that are against the level of capitalist unevenness that has developed. So, I mean, there was a a way to tolerate regional, uh, you know, uh, inequalities. So you could have inequality in Punjab where you'd have rich farmer and you'd have a landless agricultural worker. Now, You're wiping out the rich farmer and the landless agricultural worker, consolidating all the gains from the system in, say, massive corporate houses that are based in Bombay and so on. So the resistance has grown because we are moving from one kind of capitalism, which in a sense to some extent, spread out some of the gains of productivity. And now you are basically creating these very tiny minorities that monopolize the gains of social productivity. And that has produced a political backlash, which has some cross-class character to it. It's not just the landless agricultural workers, small farmers that are protesting. It's also the bigger farmers that are angry. So the depredation has gone deep. Let me put it this way. You can cut into a human being. You can cut my body, but you will hit the bone eventually. And I think that's what's happening in a place like India is the bone has been struck. And the bone has been struck. You don't want to strike the bone. That's the first natural barrier. When the bone is struck, it produces resistance. And that's what we are seeing, both that the natural barrier is pushing back and this other barrier, which is the political barrier is pushing back.
0: Hindu nationalism seems to have become uh, a main pillar of Modiism in the face of the resistance that there has been to his economic proposals. And many have lumped Modi in with other right-wing populist leaders like Trump and Bolsonaro and others. Do you think that these comparisons are justified or does India's history and place in the global economy mean that its particular form of nationalism has to be understood separately from the rise of the far right globally?
1: So there are some similarities and some differences. Let's deal with the main difference first. First, um, the party that Mr. Modi belongs to, the Bharatiya Janata Party, is related to a semi-fascistic or fascistic, actually, organization called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh. This organization was founded in 1925. During the movement against British rule, they basically sat out of the freedom struggle Uh, out of the anti-imperialist struggle. They were quite happy to collude with the British when it suited them. They come out of an agenda which is largely anti-Muslim rather than anti-imperialist. And that is a very long history, 90-year history, to which Mr. Modi is heir. The RSS itself leans on a much older history of Hindu revivalism, which goes back to the 19th century. I mean, this is a very old form of politics that Mr. Modi has inherited institutionally and ideologically. It's not a new thing. It it didn't just appear in 2014 when he won the election. This has much deeper roots in society because the RSS and its web of institutions has basically gripped parts of Indian society. You know, it it has uh, some resilience in Indian society. On the other side of it, you know, Mr. Trump is the kind of choreographer of a whole bunch of currents that he was able to bring together. He himself doesn't lead a political organization with such deep tentacles in society, you know, that are so fundamentally centralized and organized. what, What I'm trying to say is that the BJP and the RSS of Mr. Modi have much deeper organizational roots in Indian society, much harder to uproot them. Uh, Whereas even in Brazil, the Pentecostal movement, which is one of the major pillars of Mr. Bolsonaro or the the beef lobby, the mining lobby, you know, he, he is captive more to business interests. And his mass base uh, Mr bolsonaro's mass base in the Pentecostal churches and so on doesn't have that same kind of institutional grip of society that Modi has in in India, so there are some differences you know just on the surface of it. but if you look at politically what has advantaged these movements, it's actually quite similar, and what the rise of these movements is a consequence on the objective level of the basic failures of globalization, you know, globalization has its mm. advantages, uh, but the great disadvantage of, of globalization for humankind is that it has allowed a minority of the world's population to take the enormous benefits of human uh, production, you know, of the wealth that humans beings have produced. And this has created an economic crisis so that, you know, productivity gains, Uh, whether they are by better organization of of labor or by machines and so on, productivity gains go to this small minority. And you see as a consequence of that precarious employment, underemployment, unemployment, structural unemployment in large parts of the world, you've got growth rates going up, you have people unemployed. It's what's known as jobless growth. So this condition has produced a economic and social crisis for humanity, But the ruling elites in our societies merely see it as a problem of political legitimacy. They don't have any solution to the social and economic crisis. They want to hold their power. So they see that there is a question of political legitimacy. So whether it's Trump going after China, Mexico, Brexit, whatever these things are, these are instruments used by a fraction of the ruling class to Consolidate their political legitimacy to create a mass base uh, for their basically their hold. Even even though this doesn't address the immediate proximate problems of the masses, you know, it doesn't address the social economic crisis. It in fact goes away from it. But this is what they do. And so in this case, Modi's anti-Muslim agenda trumps anti-Mexico agenda, anti-China agenda. Bolsonaro's just, you know, nonstop attacks on like, you know, homosexuality or women, his attacks on China in, in recent period, all of this is a way for that fragment of the ruling class to try to address the problem that they see, which is a problem of political legitimacy. On the other side, the what Tariq Ali calls the extreme center, the liberals, they're a little disoriented because they don't have really an answer, you know, uh, they 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 also don't address the social and economic crisis, so at best, they come with some agenda of welfareism, you know, better provide a little more relief here and there in the margins. but actually, all they talk about is what your former prime minister used to talk about, Tony Blair, entrepreneurialism, you know mm. creative society, all this bogus stuff, so they are basically bankrupt, and the fight within the ruling class to reassert legitimacy is therefore a fight between these kind of Trump figures and on the other side, you know, this care stammer kind of bogus warmed over some welfareism combined with entrepreneurial language, which doesn't address people's frustrations and desires. They're not dealing with the fundamental questions.
0: Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself, actually, uh, Vijay. Um And that problem of political legitimacy has really been deepened by the pandemic in all of the countries we've been talking about. But in India, the health and economic impact has been huge, with unemployment reaching 27% and over 10 million cases of the re- disease recorded, the second highest figure in the world after the US. How do you think that Modi is going to um, you know, respond to this over the long run? Do you think that his response to the pandemic, which looks not to have been particularly competent, is going to harm his electoral prospects over the long run? Or, you know, is this something that, along with other far-right leaders, he's going to be able to take advantage of to kind of um, strengthen his grip on power?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm i hyperventilating when I heard your question, you know, because I'd already indicated that there's a serious issue with that we face with the problem of money power in the electoral system. I mean, democratic institutions have been so fundamentally eroded. You know, India in the 2019 election probably broke world records, the most expensive election in world history. And that too, something like 90% of the money that went in the election went to Mr. Modi's BJP because the corporate houses are 100% behind him. So electorally, money and control over the media and social media, which requires a huge amount of money, I mean, there is something that we should talk about quite explicitly, which is the big contradiction between capitalism and democracy. You know, when you have a a social system Mm. where there is such grotesque inequality and where the rich not only own the factories and, and control money and so on, but now increasingly they as even sometimes honestly as vanity projects by the media You know, if a big corporation buys the Washington Post and another corporation buys these so-called family newspapers, which had a somewhat independent approach, now there is no even a ghost of independence. They basically plug the views of the corporations, you know, Marx and Engels wrote in the German ideology, ruling ideas of the time are the ideas of the ruling class. Well, you know, now it's even much clearer that that is the case, you know, so you'll have the Murdochs and others, they just drive this, you know, information war that sets, uh, you know, events in a certain perspective that impacts electoralism. I mean, in in, in Brazil, Bolsonaro, so effectively, with the full media behind him, attacked Fernando Haddad, the candidate of the Workers' Party, saying he wants to make your children homosexuals. And that was the basic tagline. What were they, What was the evidence for this? Yes, that the Workers' Party was in favor of sex education in schools. You know what? Sex education in schools is a perfectly rational thing. Children need to demystify sex. It will actually go some ways towards attacking patriarchy and sexism so that you know all kinds of illusions about male superiority can be dealt with and so on. No, rather than see the... Scientific merit of teaching sex to children in schools, rather than even having a debate about that, they use their media power to go out there and say, oh, Haddad wants to make your children into homosexuals and various memes traveled around. That has an impact on people's way. People see somebody like Fernando Haddad, he got, you know, he lost the election. I mean, even now, there's total failure to control the epidemic in Brazil. And yet Bolsonaro's standing in the polls has gone up. So I'm just saying that, you know, when we talk about future of humanity and I don't want to make this sound too grand, but when we talk about things like the future of humanity, let's not go too far away from the basic thing that capitalism and democracy seem to me to be totally incompatible. And the way in which money has destroyed the media, the way money has destroyed the electoral processes, this is something for serious people to consider.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, Vijay, because I wrote about this in my last book about how the pandemic is kind of accelerating the confrontation between capitalism and democracy, both because of all those issues you've laid out, but also because of the changes it's bringing about in political economy, because we're seeing such a massive increase in monopoly and oligopoly power, whether we're talking about kind of big tech, finance or agriculture or whatever. And that's probably going to accelerate as we move into the recovery. We're going to see more mergers and acquisitions, the growing dominance of a small number of very, very large and powerful firms. And that's obviously a big problem in the global south and in India in those countries that are kind of whose economies are dominated by big monopolies. I mean, we've seen over the last couple of days, Elon Musk talking about bringing Tesla into India. It feels like actually that those relationships of kind of dependency are potentially going to deepen in the wake of the pandemic and that that is, is going to create lots of pressures on democracy as well, because you know, having a an economy that is um, unevenly integrated into into the global economy, it creates all sorts of demands and constrains the actions of governments and policymakers, even those that actually do have um, objectives that are aligned with those of the majority.
1: Look, you're making a really important point because this issue of the unevenness needs to be there. I mean, if we look at the various reports that come out from the former Swiss bank, you know, they bring out this annual wealth report. When we look at the Forbes listings and so on, we know that the bulk of wealth continues to sit both in the advanced industrial countries and North Atlantic countries. Of course, $36 trillion sits in tax havens, illicit tax havens, and so on. It's an enormous amount of money. We know that. The dominant corporations in the world are not from Brazil or from India. There are one or two in each of these from each of these countries, but the dominant corporations basically are sitting in the North Atlantic world. Um, they do face an enormous challenge from Chinese firms, particularly in high tech, uh, and that's why they've, there's this immense tension now between the United States and China because these firms do see great vulnerabilities from the advance of Chinese high tech, in 5G technology, telecommunications, in, you know, things like robotics, GPS systems, green energy, and so on. China has advanced maybe a generation ahead of some of these Silicon Valley firms and so on. So yes, there is a contest between the rise of Chinese firms, but still, the firms in the West are quite dominant, and they play a role, they subordinate capital and so on. But they have found a way so that it, the whole thing is obfuscated. You know, there are sufficient numbers of people in places like India who believe now that, that is a big capitalist in India who believe that they are partners of, of overseas capital, not subordinated to them. Um, you know, that there's enough room in the Indian market for them to make an enormous killing. They don't feel threatened by overseas competition. I mean, if you look at the world economy, it's not true that that, Uh, The platform for every firm is a global one. I mean, most economic activity happens within countries. So there's a lot of scope for these capitalists like Adani and Ambani to make money inside India. You know, they don't need to go out, um, you know, to buy firms or something in other countries. There's enough scope inside India. And they don't also feel threatened by foreign companies as long as foreign companies don't come onto their patch. That's the main thing. And so, yeah, Tesla would probably be welcome in India by these elites. Um, You know, they would like to give up the natural resources of their country for near free, as long as they become the middlemen in these agreements. Um, You know, we are in a very ugly situation now in in the world on the one side, and on the other side, I personally believe that the emergence of um, Chinese tech developments and so on, also opens up the possibility for us to enter a multipolar world. And I would welcome a multipolar world over this kind of suffocation. You know, I mean, the rise of China itself is no solution to the suffering in the world. But if it balances out this North Atlantic form of capitalism, then countries in the global South can, you know, negotiate between several poles to get their advantage. We return to something like a non-aligned situation, the possibility of that at any rate.
0: I want to talk a bit about the re-emergence of a a global debt crisis, speaking about kind of economic imperialism and how this is affecting many of the states in the global south as the pandemic wears on. I mean, India's credit rating has been downgraded to one notch above junk now. um, And there are a bunch of states, you know, including Zambia, for example, many other states in sub-Saharan Africa that are really struggling with um, just, you know, being able to... Uh, honor their obligations to creditors at the same time as providing basic healthcare equipment for their for their populations. And the World Bank and the IMF shockingly are doing absolutely nothing to really respond to this in any any kind of effective way. Now, this seems like, you know, we've had a, a, a moratorium on debt repayments, but we haven't had any progress towards kind of write off uh, of these debts for global South countries. This seems like it's not only going to be you know, a massive uh, humanitarian crisis in the making for many states in the global South. It's also going to be a profound threat to uh, the global economy when you know we potentially start seeing many of these countries becoming insolvent. What do you think people in the left, in the global north, should be campaigning on when it comes to uh, the question of of the debt crisis in the global south? Do you think we should be trying to kind of push for some sort of, uh, you know, renewed debt jubilee for states in the global south?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this is a very important uh, issue that you've raised. And I mean, I'm very much seized of this. You know, we think that, if you look at all the calculations, the low-income countries, you know, however defined, the debt burden is going to be about 3 to $4 trillion this year. That will be the sum of the debt. It's a considerable amount of money. The debt repayment schedules have not actually been revised. Uh, there has not actually been a moratorium on payments in, on the debt, the servicing of the debt. One of the reasons you haven't seen proper... Um, discussion about debt servicing being held is that debt is held by two different kinds of entities. One is the private sector, and they are consolidated around something called the London Group. And then the public sector debt, which is generally, you know, sovereign funds of countries and so on. And that's centered around something called the Paris Group. Now, there is a little more appetite among public sector entities Um, to hold up on the schedule of debt servicing. A little more appetite, but not really. Uh, There's pressure from the U.S. Treasury Department not to really be too generous. Um, You know, they continue to use that sort of Milton Friedman attitude that you'll create, um, you know, risk hazard. Uh, This is a hazard because if you forgive debt now, then people will go into debt again. I mean, it's an absurd, ludicrous theory, totally ludicrous theory. So the... Paris Group of public sector uh, debtors, um, the creditors, sorry, uh, have been a little more generous, but not really. 50% roughly of the debt is owed to the private sector. This is much higher than it was in 1980s during the third world debt crisis, much higher. Uh, This includes big firms like the BlackRock Group and so on. And they just don't want to do any debt. They don't want to change the schedule of debt payments at all. Forget debt cancellation you know, what you call jubilee. Uh, Blackstone is not even in the picture when it comes to debt cancellation, you know, and, and they, forget debt cancellation, they don't even want to reschedule, hold back, put moratoriums on debt uh, servicing. It's it's an interesting thing. I mean, there has to be a global movement. You know, in the last six, eight months, I've been part of releasing several statements calling for, um, you know, political organizations around the world to take up the issue of debt forgiveness completely, you know, uh, heads of government in in Ethiopia, which at one point was the fastest growing country in Africa, they've come out publicly and talked about complete debt forgiveness. You know, if you think about it, I said that by the end of this year, roughly three and a half to four trillion dollars is the scale of the debt held by the low-income countries. You know, we have calculated that illicit tax havens have 37 trillion dollars sitting in them. That's 10 times the amount of the total debt uh, burden held by the low-income countries. I mean, why not just write off the whole debt? You know, let them go. Uh, Make an undertaking without asking for concessions. Your debt is gone. Now, use your money that you would have used to pay off debt, to rebuild health systems, to tackle the pandemic, to be able to build regional capacity to produce the vaccine. I mean, this is a logical thing. You know, don't ask. Blackrock and these firms to claim that money and then sit on them and then reinvest it in a vicious way, no don't let them take that money. Put that money into building the capacity of countries to fight the pandemic. Make that the requirement of debt forgiveness. These countries are already saying they would like to do that. you know they, they are saying we don't want to use this money you know to inflate our own whatever currency or we don't want to use this money in some sort of tulip. Problem of creating inflation. We don't want to do all that. What we want to do is we want to build the capacity to fight against the pandemic. And so I see that that's a very you know logical and, and fruitful thing. You say, write off the debt. Uh, the debt is written off on the provision that you'll use whatever debt servicing funds you had set aside to pay to service this debt. Now we'll go towards building health infrastructure in your own country and regionally, because. To make vaccines, you know, and to make pharmaceutical drugs, we should start developing regional capacity, Horn of Africa capacity, Southern Africa capacity, instead of relying on the global chain. You know, this vaccine has showed us the power, the need of local um, productive capacity because it needs refrigeration. And we simply don't have the refrigeration courier capacity to ship 7 billion vaccines around the world. You need to have decentralized pharmaceutical industries and and we can use the money for that this is a logical thing there's no appetite right now grace there's really no appetite and i mean people in the west need to fight against not just governments but this private sector uh, debt you know these companies like blackstone and all blackrock they need to be revealed for what they are blackrock is a ruthless firm you know and and i know that there are groups like debt jubilee and so on in the the West that are trying to bring these issues forward. But I would say it needs a lot more emphasis.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to also talk to you about, you wrote an article not long ago about how investor state dispute settlements are being used to take governments to court over their response to the pandemic. We've talked about ISDSs on the show before not least with our guests from from Ecuador uh talking about the uh, the the Chevron case there which was so um you know so destructive in that country can you talk a little bit about how isds are being used during the pandemic
1: look this is a, an issue um you know uh, and we will see this becoming a problem in in future i mean you see what happens is that you have a multinational corporation operates in a country and some issues develop there where they are dumping oil in creating environmental chaos like in in ecuador you know with shell or they are you know harming the population in some other way tailings in mining companies explode people die as in brazil and so on you know so so there is a dispute inside a country the domestic courts are disparaged by the corporation. And anyway, when they came into the country, they often sign agreements where they say if there's any dispute, we're not going to deal with it in your courts because your courts will be prejudiced. And company, your countries sign off this right to their sovereignty. I mean, I think that's the first error, Grace. You if you if a company is coming into your territory, they should be subject to your laws. I, I don't understand why. Apart from the sheer realities of political power, there's no other reason to allow a company to dictate these terms. And let's return to the Chinese, you know, they are loath to to surrender their sovereignty on this issue. It's something to learn for countries. Don't surrender your sovereignty, but countries do. And then they accept that these supranational entities, which have no, absolutely no democratic oversight. The World Bank, its International Center for Settlement of Inter- Investment Disputes. I mean, what is that? You know, who are these people, and why are we allowing you know these non-democratic, mysterious groups to be the, in many cases, by the way, binding arbiters? Uh, you come to them, you give your various opinions, and they give you, and you you come to them with the view that um, that uh, whatever they decide, you have to take. It's a binding arbitration. And I think this is a serious problem. And during the pandemic, we have seen many cases where um, companies uh, look at their agreements and say, "Oh, the economy has collapsed. We are not making the kind of profits we said we were going to make. So we are going to take you to binding arbitration. You have to now." In the middle of a pandemic where you are struggling to maintain your basic institutions where unemployment is high, these companies are basically in a piracy move, going to binding arbitration, saying, you know, pay us the profits we're not getting, which we would have got had the pandemic. I mean, how is this even possible? Well, it's possible because these mysterious non-democratic groups, you know, these panels that exist, they are not so mysterious. They basically... are. Um, you know uh, on the side of capital against humanity and we've seen this happen a lot I mean this has been totally bloody rigged firstly if you don't mind my saying that and you know it it advantages these firms over and over again I mean uh, I was really uh, amazed uh, when I saw that um, you know there was a company Brazilian company sued the government of Peru for 1.2 billion dollars And what did it use for this lawsuit? It used a Peru-Luxembourg bilateral investment treaty. You know, this is a shell game. It's totally dangerous. And it's happening more and more. I mean, you know, we have lists of, I think, 20, 30 of these, the most scandalous ones um, that are out there. And and I mean, I I think more light should be shone on on this. You know, Um, I mean, these are not, these are not, These are not really international bodies. They have names that seem international. You know, as as I said, if you look at the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes of the World Bank, I mean, in name, it sounds like some UN institution, right, Grace, where Mm. there will be people nominated from the countries. No, it's not that at all. It's a bunch of corporate lawyers meet in Washington, D.C. They have very close affiliation with that section of the World Bank, which is totally pro-corporate. Um, there's nobody there on the side of humanity
0: yeah i mean i i couldn't agree more we're just going to have one last question which is so in your most recent book Eva morales wrote uh, wrote a preface and gave an endorsement and obviously bolivia experienced what can effectively be described as a coup last year and um you talk about the history of um, american kind of interventionism across the world in your most recent book but you know what we saw in Bolivia was that the movimiento al socialismo candidate backed by Morales won those elections now Bolivia is obviously an important flashpoint in Latin America partly because of its lithium reserves And again we saw Elon Musk tweeting in the wake of this this coup about how we will coup wherever we like in our search for for lithium do you think that um, the US attitude towards Latin American states like Bolivia is going to change at all under Biden or is it going to continue as it has historically? I think we all know the answer to this question to be influenced by the kind of demands of US capital.
1: Some things will change. Um, you know, it, it's, it's. I think, important that right before he leaves office, Donald Trump decides to put Cuba on a state sponsor of terrorism list. Absurd, uh, utterly absurd thing. I mean, here's Cuba sending doctors in the middle of the pandemic to help countries around the world. And these doctors in the Henry D. Brigade deserve to get the Nobel Prize for peace. In fact, there's a campaign for that. You can go to the website, Cuba Nobel, um, you know, to put them on the state sponsor of terrorism is absurd. And there's some pushback inside the Democratic Party saying this is crazy. In this last election, Trump won Florida quite, you know, commandingly, and he won the Cuban and Venezuelan populations that live in Florida. Uh, Democrats don't have to be beholden to these populations any longer. So let's see what happens. I think that... You know, most likely Biden will reverse this uh, state sponsor of terrorism listing for Cuba. I think that he's already said they should take the military option off the table with Venezuela, although his national security advisor said we should double down on sanctions. That's not promising because Mm -hmm. sanctions are extraordinarily, um, you know, uh, it's a crime against humanity, in my opinion. It's illegal, firstly. There's no UN Security Council resolution backing it. So it's against the UN Charter. The US sanctions on Venezuela. It's against the Organization of American States Charter, actually, because there's no UN resolution. So, Biden, it'll be a mixed bag race. I think on one side, the tone will be better because they are more sophisticated. They'll be less brusque, you know, Trump giving speeches against communism and so on. The liberals are generally slightly more euphemistic in their imperialism than the Republicans. So, you'll have a return to that. But I think, as I said, on the margins, here and there, there'll be changes. Will there be any significant change? Not at all. I mean, you know, uh, they will still drive this Cold War that the U.S. has been pushing against China into Latin America. Trump created something called American Crache or Growth in the Americas, which is a direct response to the Belt and Road Initiative in Latin America, already in El Salvador The president, he's a president of the right, went to Beijing, signed an agreement for a Chinese company, state company, to develop the port. On the return journey, he stopped in in Tokyo. At the time, Shinzo Abe was the prime minister. Abe told him, don't go with the Chinese. He carried a message from the U.S. President arrives back in in El Salvador. The United States sends the American crashier team. Uh, they have a public press conference and then now he says, OK, we'll go with the Americans. I mean, this kind of thing is going to continue. It has a destabilizing impact. It's not a good thing. Um, the more competition of this kind you'll see in a place like Latin America. I'm telling you, the more tension you have. One reason there was the coup against Evo. I mean, there's 10 reasons maybe, but one reason was that they started to move their economic ties closer and closer to the Chinese, including, of course, that the Chinese Um, assisted the Bolivians in sending a Bolivian uh, satellite into space, the Tupac-Katari satellite. So, you know, it's very destabilizing. I mean, I'm looking forward to a day when countries can actually deal with each other with a sense of their respective sovereignty and not in this way where you use armed force and coups and so on, you know, to exercise your will over another country. I mean, yes, I'm a socialist. I'm looking forward to a socialist world, but I also in the short term would just like to see the exercise of sovereignty.
0: Mm. Thank you so much, Vijay Prashad, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was great to talk to you today. And don't forget to buy Vijay's most recent book, Washington Bullets.